My name is Eli. I was born in Beirut, Lebanon. I grew up in Cyprus and currently I live in the United States. All suffering is temporary, but Cyprus and the Cypriot culture, which is heavenly influenced by Greek culture and customs, is generally full of people that love to show hospitality to others. Uh, however, as it is the case in many places, there are also people that are afraid of foreigners and may show that fear in different ways. God has taught me to relate to others with similar experiences. I know what it's like to grow up in a war. I know what it's like to leave home and everything familiar for the unknown and uncertain. I know what it's like to live somewhere without knowing the language and culture. I know what it's like to be alone and start over. I know what it's like to struggle for survival. And God knows my struggles and personal experiences. In all this, God has taught me to rely on Him alone. Morning, church. It's good to be together today. My name is Luke. I'm the associate minister here at PCC. If you would, open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Uh, the words are going to be on the screen here in just a second. Let's read it all out loud together, if you don't mind. Peter writes this. He says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Christ Jesus. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So, Peter says, the end of all things is near. How's that for your encouraging word of the morning? <laughs> he skips the fluffy stuff, so we're just gonna dive right into the deep end. Peter says, the end of all things is near. In other words, the life that you are living now will not go on like this forever. There is an expiration date. And that end will come for you in one of two ways. Either you will die or Jesus will come back. So let's look at each one of those potential endings that all of us face. First, if the Lord doesn't come back first, you are going to die. Now, I get the honor of being a part of a fair amount of funerals here at the church, and it's always a privilege to be with families in tender moments like that, but it's also a very sobering reminder for me that this life that we're living doesn't go on forever. It doesn't last. And so almost every time I preach a funeral, I read from Psalm 90. Psalm 90 says in verse 10, our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them, are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. And then in light of this reality that we're all gonna die, the psalmist goes on to say in verse 12, he says, teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
So then at the funeral, I do just what Psalm 90 says. I like to number our days. I will tell how many days the person in the casket lived, and then I'll tell how many days I've been alive. As of today, I have been alive for 9,383 days. Now, that seems like a pretty big number, but it's flown by. And just for context, as of today, Steve has been alive for 23,912 days. (laughs) That's a big number, right? Yeah. (laughs) I've heard it said before that life is like a roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. (laughs) And someday, for me, for Steve, for you, that number's gonna quit rolling. And I don't know when. But I do know that someday I will die. And so in light of that reality, we have to ask two questions. And the first one is this. Do you know where you're going? Because the minute after you die will either be the best or the worst minute of your entire life. I heard a shocking statistic that that for every one American who thinks they're going to hell, there's 120 who think they're going to heaven. Wow. That's a pretty dangerous thing to assume. So I'll ask you again, do you know where you're going? Now, if you've put your trust in Jesus and you've been baptized and you're actively following him, then you have no need to be afraid. I'm not trying to scare you this morning. Your eternal destiny is secure. You've been washed in the blood of Jesus. Your ticket has been purchased. You're good. But there are some of you in the room today who need to ask this question. Do you know where you're going? It's an incredibly important question, but actually, it's not the question I wanna spend most of our time on together today, because the second question is the one that Peter actually really wants us to ask coming out of this text, and the question is this. If Jesus was gonna come back tomorrow, what would you do today? If Jesus were going to come back tomorrow, what would you do today? Because you are going to die. Yes, that's true. But that's not actually what Peter is focusing on here because the greater truth is that Jesus is coming back. And that should affect how we live right now. Over and over again, the New Testament makes this really clear about the second coming. Jesus is coming back. The Bible says, first of all, he will come soon. James chapter five says, the Lord's coming is near. Revelation 22 says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The Bible says that when he comes, it'll be a surprise. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, now brothers and sisters, About times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That means that we need to stay alert and be ready. Jesus himself says, Matthew chapter 24, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he could have kept watch and not let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The Bible also says that when he comes, he will come in the sky. Acts chapter one, you might remember this from when we studied Acts several months ago, but after Jesus dies, he's raised to dead, he spends a little time here on earth with his disciples, and then he ascends into heaven, and they're watching him go. Verses 10 and 11, it says, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Paul says it like this, 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Bible says that when he comes, everybody's gonna know it. Jesus himself says, Matthew chapter 24, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the son of man. 
Revelation chapter one, verse seven. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And when he does come, all of the dead, both good and bad, will be raised. They will be bodily resurrected. Jesus says in John five, do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done what is good will rise to live. And those who've done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So that means that when Jesus returns, he's coming to judge the world. As he says in Matthew chapter 16, for the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Paul says it like this, Romans chapter 14. He says, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. That's a sobering thought. But for us Christians, we don't have to be scared on judgment day because Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse one, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, not only do we not have to be scared of Jesus coming back, we can look forward to it. Jesus' return is a blessed, happy hope for us. Titus chapter two says, while we wait for this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, we're waiting in eager anticipation for Jesus to return because when he does return, we will be made to be like him. Philippians chapter three says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Listen, church, Jesus is coming back. And when he does, every knee will bow. And when he comes back, those who have rejected him will fall to their knees in terror. But when he comes back, we will fall to our knees in great joy because we followed him and we've loved him and we finally get to see him. Because the thing is, we know Jesus, we hear his voice, we do life with him, we obey him. He's present with us, he lives in us. We have gotten to know him, we've experienced him. And yet we haven't actually gotten to see him. He's been present with us. He's never left us, but we've never actually set eyes on him. But on that day, as the old hymn says, our faith shall become sight. And we will see those nail-pierced hands that healed the blind man. We'll see those feet that walked the dusty roads. We will see the body that Mary swaddled and the Roman soldiers pierced. And we will see our king finally more glorious than we've ever imagined. It's gonna be a good day. Now, I don't know what all this makes you feel. And maybe you feel skeptical because you've heard lots of goofy end times prophecies before. And maybe this makes you uncomfortable because you'd rather just live in the here and now. And maybe this makes you scared because you're not sure what's gonna happen to you on that day. Or maybe you don't buy it at all because it just feels kind of mystical and uncertain and it's been 2,000 years since this guy wrote this and it hasn't happened yet. And maybe you don't want Jesus to come back because you've got some other things you'd like to do in the meantime. <laughs> Regardless of what you're feeling right now, it is my prayer that as we discuss and as you dwell on the return of Jesus today, that you would come to feel what I feel and what Peter wants all who read this letter to feel. Hope. That you would long for the return of Jesus more deeply, that you would fix your hope on that and that you would pray as, you join me in praying as Christians have prayed for the last 20 centuries. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what Peter wants. So back to Peter's main point here. Peter says, uh, the end of all things is near. So what exactly does he mean by that? Well, and when I used to teach children's church, by the way, the rule was no laughing at Luke's pictures. Can we agree? <laughs> Thank you. You disobeyed. All right. Um, 
So oftentimes when we think about time and the end of the world and heaven and all those kinds of things, we think of it as like this. Like here's the timeline we're living on. This is the world we're living in right now. This is our lives. This is the world. And someday it's all going to come to an end. And then eternity will, be, will begin. We'll all go to heaven, right? This is how we think of it. There's this clean break between this present age and the age to come. Well, that's not actually how the Bible describes it. The Bible says that the age to come and this present age are kind of actually overlapping. They're a little more mixed together than that. The Bible teaches it like this. Like this is the present age that we are living in. Okay, here I'll write this present age. And I'll just write present age. That's easier. If you can read my handwriting, you're amazing, okay? Um, this is this present age we're living in. This is our life in the world. We do get to know God. We get to experience God's presence at some level. We get to live with him a little bit here, and yet we don't fully get to experience him. We're not fully redeemed yet. We're still trapped in these sinful bodies, living in a sinful world. We're not in heaven with God yet. This is this present age that we're living in, and yet we are looking forward to the age to come. This is the age to come when we will be finally fully redeemed, we'll get to be with God, we'll get to be in heaven, we'll get to experience his presence most fully, we are looking forward to the age to come. And yet, like we said, the Bible teaches there's not a clean break between the present age and the age to come. The Bible says that actually, the age to come has invaded this present age in Jesus Christ. That when Jesus came, all of a sudden God is here. And Jesus came saying, the kingdom of heaven is here. In other words, the age to come has begun right now in this world, in this present age. They're overlapping, and that's amazing. And we get to experience this age to come a little bit because Jesus died and he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven. He gave us his spirit. And so we, the church, are living this life. Jesus taught, how to, how to live, taught, Jesus taught us how to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So that's what we're doing. Even though we're living in this present age, we are citizens of the age to come. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's why we're calling this series Strangers because we're living in the age to come even though we actually exist right now in this present age. So we do get to experience a little bit of the kingdom. We get God's presence in us in the Holy Spirit. We get to know Jesus. We get this fellowship where we're living according to heavenly standards instead of earthly standards. And yet we don't get to fully experience it, right? There's still brokenness all around us. We only get to fully experience the kingdom at the second coming. So in Jesus' first coming, he inaugurates the kingdom. But it's not until the second coming that he consummates the kingdom. And so we're living right now in this time between times. This little thing that what theologians would call the now and the not yet. Yes, we do get to experience the age to come now, but it's not yet fully here. We're living on the edge of eternity. All we're waiting for is Jesus' second coming. And in fact, the Bible would describe this, this time that we're living in right now and Please don't freak out when I say this, okay? Because it can mean a lot of things, but here's what it means. The Bible describes this as the last days. We are living in the last days right now. This time between times, this now and not yet, where the only thing we're waiting for is Jesus to come back, and then the kingdom is fully here. We finally get to be fully with him. And now, the, the big fancy, like $5 theological word for the study of last days or end times or last things, the big word here is eschatology, Please don't check my spelling. Eschatology. And what eschatology is, it's the study of the last things. Now, we've all seen eschatology be abused before, right? With unhelpful speculations about timelines of the end of the world and who the Antichrist is and exactly how everything's gonna come falling apart and trying to predict the exact day when Jesus is coming back. That's not the point of eschatology. Good eschatology, the point is to focus on the future to help us live faithfully in the present, to focus on the end 
to help us live for God and be who he's calling us to be in the now. That's what Peter's calling us to do here when he says the end of all things is near. He's calling us to live faithfully right here and now in light of the end. It's kind of like some of you, when you get a new book, what do you do? Some of you, the first thing you do is you go read the end of the book, right? You go read the end of the book, you wanna see how it ends, and then you go read all the chapters leading up to it, and that influences how you read all those first chapters, because you already know who the bad guy is and how the good guys are gonna win. You're living in light of the end. That's what Peter's calling us to do. Peter's calling us to live knowing that the last days are quickly approaching. Like a little girl who's playing in her bedroom and she knows she has five minutes before mom comes walking down the hall to put her to bed. That's gonna be the hardest five minutes she plays all day, right? Because she knows the end is coming. Peter's calling us to live like I lived when my wife was nine months pregnant. When she was nine months pregnant, I always had my phone on loud. I was ready, waiting on that phone call to see that the baby was coming, the baby was here. And no matter what else I was doing, it was never very far from my mind. And so when I got that phone call finally, I was ready. That's how Peter's calling us to live. In light of the end, live faithfully in the now. That's what what he would call actually the big term is eschatological ethics, living with the end in mind. So we come back to our question. If Jesus were coming back tomorrow, what would you do today? And thankfully, Peter doesn't leave us hanging here. He doesn't just leave us guessing. In light of the fact that the end of all things is near, Peter gives us four things to do right here in the present. And the first one is this. First he says, in light of the end, pray. Pray. Verse seven, Peter writes, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Peter says, be alert and of sober mind. That means don't be caught off guard. Don't be sleepwalking through life. You should be living a disciplined, purposeful, intentional life. Don't live by accident. Live on purpose. And Peter says the way to start doing that is by being proactive in prayer. Now, if we're honest with each other today, sometimes prayer can be hard. And we can make a lot of excuses for why we're struggling in our prayer life. That's why I'm excited next year as a church, we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about prayer and working through some of those excuses. We're gonna spend a lot of time praying together as a church. But Peter says one of the keys to a vibrant prayer life is discipline, consistency. It's not fancy, but that's the key. It's hard work. You just gotta be disciplined at it. The more you pray, the more you will know God, the more you will love God, the more vibrant your prayer life will be, the more effective your prayer life will be, the more you will long for Jesus to come back. It takes discipline and consistency. And that way, so he's saying, hey, be, be intentional about your prayer life. Even if it's just a few minutes a day, get alone, be quiet, just talk with God, spend some time with him. That way when he comes, you don't have to introduce yourself. You kind of already have a relationship, you know? So Peter's saying, in light of the end, number one, pray. And secondly, in light of the end, he says, love, love. Verse eight, Peter says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, we all like the idea of love, right? Nobody's gonna argue against love. We all like to talk about love, and yet Peter's saying that that love is a lot more than just coming to church and smiling and shaking hands with the people around you on a Sunday morning. Love has to be deep, he says. It's gotta be gritty. And in order to have a deep love, you gotta get to know people. You gotta invest in people. You gotta let people invest in you. And when that kind of deep love happens, it comes with a lot of other stuff too. People are gonna hurt you. People are gonna annoy you. People are gonna get on your nerves. You're gonna have to forgive each other. But that's real love, that's deep love, because that's the way that that Jesus loved us. And in order to have that kind of deep love, you have to be connected. The fact of the matter is, there's a lot of you who are here every week, and I'm thankful for that, but you're not really deeply relationally connected yet. If that's you, I'd encourage you, please, please join a home group. That's where we want this kind of deep love community to happen in our church. 
And we're living in a world where it's really easy to have shallow love, to have superficial relationships, to only relate to each other at a, at a face, face level and never get deeper than that. It's shocking that we're living in a world now where we've never been connected to more people than we are right now. And yet we've maybe never been more lonely as a society than we are right now. In fact, it's interesting, research shows that people who are deeply relationally connected, like Peter's describing, actually live healthier lives than those who aren't. People who have deep relationships recover better after having a stroke. They're more resilient to things like a common cold. There's a researcher from Harvard named Robert Putnam, and he found that people with bad health habits, people who didn't eat well, didn't exercise, didn't sleep enough, people who had bad health habits but good deep relationships actually lived significantly longer than people who lived healthy lives but were isolated. In other words, one author says, it's better to eat Twinkies with friends than broccoli alone. (laughs) Words to live by, put that on your fridge. In fact, this this same researcher, Robert Putnam, found that if you belong to no groups, but you decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. Wow. That's why the new motto for our home groups ministry is join a home group or die. In light of the end, Peter says, pray. And in light of the end, Peter says, love deeply. And the third thing is this, Peter says, in light of the end, show hospitality. That's just a really practical way how we exercise this kind of deep love that he's calling us to. Verse nine, Peter says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now the kicker in this command is the last part, right? Without grumbling. Literally, it means without mumbling under your breath. Because please tell me I'm not the only one. How many times do people come over and we open the front door and we're all smiley and clean? It's like, if you would have been here five minutes ago, one brother's trying to cut the other brother's hair, little sister's screaming because somebody beheaded her Barbie. There's peanut butter and jelly all over the floor. Mom and dad are griping at each other, going 100 miles an hour because we got to have company come over. (laughs) Am I the only one? Please. (laughs) Oh, come on. You're making me feel bad. All right. Well, Peter says, Peter says, no, no, no. We got to be real. We gotta be real, we gotta show happy hospitality. We gotta let people into our real home, let people into our real lives. Because listen, God did not give you your home to be a status symbol of your net worth. God did not give you your home to be this little castle where you just take refuge from the world with your close friends and your family. God gave you your home primarily as a tool to help you make disciples, to raise your family to love God and to help others do the same. So that when you show hospitality to your kids' friends and they sit around your table and their parents and your coworkers and your extended family and your neighbors, when they sit around your table and come into your house, they, they, they see what it's like to have a Jesus-centered household and a Jesus-centered marriage and a Jesus-centered retirement and Jesus-centered discussions about work and a Jesus-centered parenting philosophy and Jesus-centered calendar and Jesus-centered finances and Jesus-centered talk around the dinner table. God gave you your home so that you could use it to show happy hospitality to both Christians and non-Christians. And again, this is why we're really emphasizing home groups because we need to practice this kind of deep love, happy hospitality with one another so that then we can practice it with the people God puts in our path because Jesus is coming back. We gotta be about this. So Peter says, pray, love, show hospitality. And fourth, he says, in light of the end, use your gifts. Verse 10, Peter says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And so the progression Peter's describing is kind of like this. God gives you a gift. It's a gift from his grace. He's given you stuff. And yet it's not just for you to keep. He's given you that gift so that you can then use it to serve other people. 
Because God says you're, you're, you're a steward. You're a steward of God's grace in its various forms. Now, I love that little Greek phrase, various forms. It literally means multicolored. You are a steward of God's multicolored grace. God's grace isn't monotone. There's a whole lot of different colors of gifts in this room. And God's, God's grace shines uniquely, a different shade, a different color through each one of you as you use the gifts that he's given you. That's why you know what you know. That's why you have what you have. That's why you can do what you can do so that you can use that to show, show other people God's grace. And as you serve them, they will see a unique color of God's grace shining through you. And the fact of the matter is, we got a lot of untapped gifts in this room. We got a lot of you guys who have things that you can do, things that you have, things that you can use that are just kind of sitting on the shelf. But if you put those things to work, just imagine Hendricks, color, Hendricks County would see the colors of God's grace in a brand new way. We got to see that last week when Josiah did his dance. It was pretty awesome, wasn't it? Yeah, I saw the colors of God's grace. Got a lot more people like that out here. Imagine, imagine what that would be like if you used your cooking ability or your handyman skills, or your time, or the way you're raising your kids, or your time with your grandkids, or your craftsmanship, or your organizational ability, or your love for leadership, or your songwriting, or your love for writing letters, or, or your gift of speaking, or, or your art, or your conversational ability. Imagine if you let God use those things to bless the people around you. Man, I bet the colors of God's grace would shine so bright, everybody would wanna be a part of this. They'd want what we have. So in light of the end, Pray, love, be hospitable, and use your gifts. If Jesus were coming back tomorrow, what would you do today? There's a great uh, author and preacher by the name of Tony Campolo, and he talks about what it's like to live knowing that the end is near. And in, in one of his sermons, uh, Tony Campolo says, I belong to an African-American church, a black church. Now, please understand, Tony Campolo is not African-American. He's Italian-American. He's like as pasty white as it comes, okay? And Tony Campolo goes on to describe what it's like to preach at his home church, this African-American church. And Tony Campolo says, man, they let you know how you're doing. Because you got all the deacons sitting down here in the front row, and every time you say something good, they start yelling, preach, brother, preach. <laughs> and he says, and, and the women in my congregation, I love them, because they, when, when, when they get going, they raise their hand and they just say, well... Well, just like that, you got 500 women in the room going, well. And Tony Campolo says, now the men in my congregation, they're the best, because when you really get on the roll, they stand up and they start hooping and hollering, keep going, brother, keep going, keep going. Now, just as a side note, I think I would preach a whole lot better if I got some of that. <laughs> it wasn't rhetorical, come on, guys. <laughs> That's like saying, sick him to a hound dog. Let's go, you know? So, so Tony Campolo says, he, he says, once a year in our church, we have student recognition day. And the students, they all come back from their colleges and universities and they come up to the pulpit one by one and they give their name, they tell what they're doing and what they're studying and the old people love it. One of them will come up and say, I'm studying law at Harvard. And, and people go, my, my, mm, 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 mm. <laughs> And somebody else will come up and say, I'm studying engineering at MIT. Oh, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And somebody else will come up and say, I'm, I'm studying music at Juilliard. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Tony Campolo says, you may have heard great music today, but you haven't heard the greatest music until you hear 500 grandmothers and grandfathers moaning and groaning. <laughs> the moans and groans of joy because their grandchildren are becoming what America never let them be. And then Tony Campolo, he says that, that when they're all finished and seated and all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, the pastor get up to speak to the college kids. And please understand, I cannot preach like this guy, okay? He is way better than me, but I'm gonna try, all right? So, so the pastor get up, and he, he, he'd look at all the children, and he'd say, children, 
children, you're going to die. You are going to die. Tony Campolo says this is an important thing to remind young people because they don't think they're going to die. That's why they drive the way they do. <laughs> the pastor get up and he said, you're going to die. And they're going to take you to the cemetery. They're going to drop you in a hole and throw dirt on your face. And then they're going to go back to the church and eat potato salad. <laughs> the pastor say, he say, when you were born... You were the only one that cried. Everybody else was happy. That's not important. What's important is when you die, will you be the only one that's happy and everybody else will cry? Well, it depends on what you're living for. Titles or testimony. Now he's got it all going on. He's got the alliteration. He's got the power. And then Tony would say that the, whole, the preacher would just sweep through the whole Bible in five minutes. He'd say, there was Moses. And then there's Pharaoh. And Pharaoh had the title, ruler of Egypt. That's a pretty good title, ruler. But when it was all said and done, Pharaoh had the title, but that's all he had was the title because Moses had the testimony. And then there's Queen Jezebel. Queen, that's a pretty powerful title, Queen Jezebel. And she came after Elijah, the prophet of God, tried to get rid of him. But by the time it was all said and done, that's all she had was the title queen because Elijah had the testimony. And then King Darius tried to throw Daniel in the lion's den. Now, Darius had the title, powerful title, king, King Darius. But by the time the story was over, all he had was that title because Daniel had the testimonies. Listen, church. Someday they're gonna take you to the cemetery and they're gonna drop you in a hole and they're gonna throw dirt on your face and they're gonna go back to the church and eat potato salad. And when they do, what'll it all amount to? An obituary and some titles on a tombstone? Or will there be people standing around your grave giving testimonies? Testimonies of how you loved for them and cared for them and concerned for them. And in the name of Jesus Christ, you worked for their well-being. Now, I, I wish for you both titles and testimonies. But if you have to choose, go for the testimonies. Because the end of all things is near. And I don't know which will happen first. Jesus coming back or me dying. But when all is said and done and the book is closed on my life, I want the testimony. I want to know that I prayed well. I want to know that I used what God gave me to the best of my ability. I want people to say that I loved deeply. I want people to say that they met Jesus in my home. Don't you? Let's pray. King Jesus, come back. Jesus, we're ready. We're ready for you to return. We want you to come back. We want you to make it all new. We want you to fix it. We, we want to see you. We want to be with you. So come quickly, Lord Jesus. And if you choose to wait, keep us faithful.
Keep us faithful, Lord. I pray that we would be about your work, that we would be always remembering that the end is near, that you are coming. So that when the book is closed, there'll be people in heaven saying that they met you because we loved deeply, because we prayed earnestly, because we opened our home to welcome people into your home. We love you, and we can't wait for you to get back. In your name we pray, amen.